From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Stoda. For more than 50 years, we have known that smoking is bad for your health. And yet, millions of Americans still smoke because trying to quit and trying to stay smoke-free, well, it's not easy. Nicotine addiction makes smoking a hard habit to break. Yeah, that's for sure. And on today's program, we are going to hear about a new study aimed at helping people quit smoking by combining lung cancer screening with increased support and communication to help people stop smoking. Also on the program, Tracy McRae joins me as co-host as we learn about rare and undiagnosed diseases and how pharmacogenomics may help fix, in some ways, the opioid crisis. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Stoda. Dennis, nice to have you here. It's an important topic we're going to talk about today. And we know from the American Cancer Society that over 36 million Americans still smoke cigarettes. And now that's about 15% of the population. But what's interesting, if you go back to the 1960s, more than 40% of Americans smoked cigarettes. Unbelievable. Yeah, so we have made a lot of progress, but still 36 million smokers in this country. And, you know, the other ways to smoke tobacco, cigars, pipes, hookah or water pipes, those are all on the rise. Tobacco, as we all know, or most of us know, is the single largest preventable cause of disease in the entire world. And 80% of lung cancer deaths are the result of smoking. The longer than you smoke, the greater the risk. Good thing you and I quit when we were younger. Yes, sir. (laughs) It's hard, though. It is. And we know that that nicotine is extremely addicting. But, of course, it's not lung cancer that kills most people who smoke. It's circulatory or cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, and strokes. So if you are still smoking or someone you love is still smoking, maybe it's time to think about quitting. Maybe in a big way, time to think about that. And maybe this will help you. Each year, the third Thursday in November is the American Cancer Society's Great American Smokeout. And that's a a day that's really dedicated to encouraging people to quit smoking. A new study at Mayo Clinic is looking at some new ways to help people succeed at quitting by combining lung cancer screening with some proactive referrals and increased communication with smokers. So here to discuss lung cancer screening and smoking cessation are pulmonary and critical care physician, Dr. David Mattoon, and also internal medicine specialist, Dr. Taylor Hayes. Yeah, welcome to both of you. Good to have you on the program. Thank you. So we want to talk about uh, new ways to quit smoking and the new program at Mayo, but I'm, we're also interested in this lung cancer screening program, uh, which I think uh, you were in charge of or have an important uh, part in the program, Dr. Midtoon. So so tell us about that. Obviously, can, lung cancer, like most cancers, if you catch it early, you got a shot, and I assume that that's what your program is all about. Right. Tom, that's exactly the philosophy behind it. A privilege to be back with you. We had a chance to talk about this a few years ago and happy to bring some updates. So lung cancer screening was shown to be effective through the National Lung Screening Trial, which is a study of over 53,000 people randomized between low-dose CT screening and chest X-ray. And in the low-dose CT arm, there was a reduction in deaths, mortality reduction uh, with screening. Uh, chest X-ray subsequently has been shown not to be effective uh, in a separate randomized trial that, or 
separate trial looking at chest X-ray versus no screening whatsoever. Now, you say low dose. You mean that the amount of radiation is, is minimal because normally with a CT scan, you get a fair amount of radiation. Correct. It depends on the, the method that the CT is done, and this is geared at low dose because potentially we're recommending screening for 15 years or longer uh, for those who are at high risk. So we want to reduce the dose as much as possible. It's not no risk, but it's low risk and low dose radiation with the CT. The estimate there um, is about 1.5, and the measurement is millisieverts. Compare that to being on the planet for a year, we get about 3 millisieverts of radiation. So it is very low dose. When you say at risk, who is at risk? So anyone who has smoked a significant amount is at significant risk for lung cancer. And we define high risk from the guideline perspective as far as who to be considered for CT screening as somebody who is age 55 to 80 and has a 30-pack year history. That's the equivalent of smoking a pack a day for 30 years. And how about people who are still smoking? And an active smoker only continues to accelerate that risk. Uh, there is some additional risk that just comes with aging. So even after you've quit smoking, there is some increase in risk with lung cancer, for lung cancer. Dr. Hayes, expand on this a little bit and tell us about the Mayo Clinic study. And, and by sort of offering this one, two, three punch, what's different about this than the usual smoking cessation program? The idea behind this program, which uh, came out of a, a grant application through the National Cancer Institute, was to integrate smoking cessation and lung cancer screening. Makes perfect sense, right? Because, as Dave often says to me, uh, lung cancer screening reduces the mortality from lung cancer, but the thing that reduces mortality from lung cancer better than anything else is to stop smoking. Sure. So we want to integrate both those, and and now that lung cancer screening is Part of the healthcare landscape, uh, insurance payers are paying for it. M- Medicare pays for it. We know that people will take advantage of that. Uh, the National Cancer Institute said, we want to know how well and in what ways can we integrate smoking cessation intervention with lung cancer screening. People who come into the program are obviously going to be, uh, many of them are going to be smokers, and so this is an uh, obvious opportunity to, to intervene with those folks and help them stop. Do you find um, you have different kinds of patients coming in? There may be the one guy who says, oh, good, I'm in the clear, I can keep smoking, or other people for whom it's a wake-up call. This is serious. Uh, Dave will probably want to respond too, but I I think that uh, it's both. Uh, And one of the things that we don't know is the answer to that question. If people get negative scans, uh, are they less motivated to quit? Uh, do they have the sense, oh, I've got a reprieve or I'm in the clear? Well, the process of lung cancer screening is fairly easy in the sense that it's done with a CT scan uh, in a single breath hold that takes less than 15 seconds and you keep your clothes on. Uh, it's painless in that sense. Um, but as you said, it's more important to tie that into smoking cessation as well as far as doing the, the most optimal combination in reducing your chance of dying from lung cancer. So a a patient goes in to see their physician, maybe for their yearly physical, Uh, they're still smoking, so their physician says, you know, you ought to be screened for lung cancer on a yearly basis. They come to you and you say, hey, listen, uh, your, your scan looks pretty good, but have you ever thought about quitting smoking? And then you refer them on to uh, Dr. Hayes's group to get help with smoking, stopping smoking. 
Right, so that would be the routine process uh, outside of the study. If, if the patient comes for screening and uh, meets the eligibility criteria, doesn't meet any of the ineligibility criteria, then and, they, and we go through what's called a shared decision-making process, so they learn about the potential benefits and harms of screening and agree to proceed. It, and our current smoker, at that point, they would be offered enrollment in the study. So actually, potentially before they've had a CT scan done, or alternatively, if they are in the program, and we have over 3,000 patients in the program at eight different sites, and they come for their next annual scan, and are a current smoker, then they'd be offered enrollment in in the study. And we know that physicians and even employers have offered incentives to people to quit smoking. And, and Dr. Hayes, it seems like there are some other tools that are available that may not have been 10 years ago that would make success more likely. Sure, yeah, there are lots of tools. I mean, there are medications that can help. Uh, the most recent is varenicline, or, or the trade name is Chantix, but it's been a number of years now that that's been on the market. The most recent evidence for that, uh, has been related to the safety of the drug because there were a number of questions about safety, and those were answered with a very large study that was published in 2016. The other things that have changed in the landscape um, include, and, and um, relevant to our study, is the ability to reach out to patients through mobile devices, text messaging, uh, and the Internet. And, in fact, our study is to look at those kinds of interventions. How do we connect with patients uh, on web-based and text messaging, as well as using face-to-face counseling. And we, what we are wanting to demonstrate is that we can increase the reach of these kinds of interventions. More support in a number of ways. Right. Uh, it's in your pocket. Yeah. Uh, so you you, you, their phone goes off and it says, uh, don't pick up that cigarette. Huh? <laughs> in a way, yes. <laughs> All right. We've been talking about lung cancer screening and a new study being conducted at the Mayo Clinic to try and help people quit smoking. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, e-cigarettes and also the benefits of uh, quitting and tell you how you can get a hold of the Mayo Nicotine Dependence Center if you'd like to quit smoking. Plus, Dennis, we got a myth or matter of fact. Yeah, this is interesting. Myth or matter of fact, your heart rate and blood pressure can drop in just 20 minutes after you quit smoking. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Doda. We are back talking about lung cancer screening and smoking cessation with Dr. David Midtoon and Dr. J. Taylor Hayes. And myth or matter of fact, just 20 minutes after you quit smoking, your heart rate and your blood pressure drop. Only takes that long. So is it myth? Is it a fact, Dr. Hayes? It's true. Wow. Blood pressure and pulse rate will drop quickly after stopping smoking, usually only uh, less than an hour or so. Pretty amazing, isn't it? So how long then does it take before you reduce your risk of a heart attack? The risk of heart attack really goes down very quickly. So within a year of stopping, your risk of having a heart attack is about 50% of the risk of people who continue to smoke. And after about three years, it goes down to the level of the person who's never smoked. So it's really? a very rapid decline in risk for cardiovascular events. Pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah. That's amazing. And what about lung cancer? Yeah. How long does that take? It takes a little longer. <laughs> Most of the data suggests that it takes 15 to 20 years for the risks to accumulate. People who started smoking a year ago or five years ago aren't at much risk. People who started smoking 15 and 20 and 25 years ago are the people who are at most risk because it, it takes that long of an exposure. And so 
you can imagine that it takes a while after you stop the exposure to have the risk reduce. And most of the studies suggest it's 10 to 15 years to drop to its lowest level. And for people who are heavier smokers, um, there, there probably is some remaining increased risk of lung cancer their life long, but it does go down to very low levels after 10 to 15 years. Dr. Mintoon, as a former smoker, what's happening in my lungs within that period immediately after I quit smoking? Do things heal inside of us? So there's some inflammation that occurs with active smoking that takes weeks to months to settle down afterwards, and occasionally we'll find changes on a CT scan even if the inflammation from that is is dramatic enough. But um, those immediate effects on inflammation in the bronchi do take days to weeks to settle down. As far as the lung cancer risk goes, as, as Dr. Hayes mentioned, it's a 20-year lag time usually between onset of active smoking and when one would potentially develop a sig- significant risk for, for lung cancer. On the flip side of that, the, the lung does remember that exposure. And compared to an active smoker who can continues to smoke, say at age 55 when they might be considered for lung cancer screening, the risk is significantly less if you quit compared to if you continue. But then there's the age-related increase in risk for lung cancer that we all have, even as never smokers, um, that comes into play. So that even 15 and 20 years after quitting, your risk at that point is higher than it was at the time that you quit say, at age 55. Okay. And basically, you're, I think you're both saying it's never really too late to quit. That's true. And, and studies have clearly shown that if you quit by age 40 or early 40s, you avoid nearly all of the excess risk for disease and, and uh, quality of life reduction that, that people have when they smoke for their life long. Um, and it's never too late because people who quit when they're 55 or 65 still add years to their life. The 40 or 45-year-old will add 10 years. The 50 to 55-year-old will add six to seven. The 65-year-old will add two to three years of life. And it's not just adding years of life. It's it's better quality of life. So what's the average life expectancy for a smoker? Because it, for, for people who, on average, Americans are living to age 78, 79, but not smokers, right? Right. It, it depends. Uh, when you started and how it, long? It depends huh? on the dose, yeah. you know, how, how much you've been exposed to. So if you've been a... One plus pack per day smoker, you're going to reduce your life expectancy by 10 to 15 years. In some groups who are very heavy smokers, for example, in people with serious mental illness and schizophrenia who are heavy smokers, their life expectancy is 25 years less than than their non-smoking cohorts. Wow. There's not much good to say about smoking, is there? Not much. So there, there is some encouraging and motivation, it sounds like, for people who come through this new Mayo Clinic program, and, and people can even participate in the study. Uh, Dr. Mintoon, how does one enroll? So one can either be referred by their primary care provider or call the program directly. The number is 507-538-0340, or as I say, they can be referred um, by their provider for an initial assessment as to whether or not they would be a candidate, and if they are, then they'd be scheduled to come in for the shared decision-making and the, potentially the CT scan. All right, we'll give that number again at the uh, at the end of the program. But, uh, Dr. Hayes, so I want to ask you about e-cigarettes, because there, is, there are some people who I think believe that an e-cigarette can help you quit smoking. The data is very limited. There are only a very small number of studies that have looked at it. Um, I'll say that 
Some of those studies suggest there may be some benefit. The problem with e-cigarettes, however, is the the lack of of extended studies or uh, a number of people repeating the same studies to show us that it really is truly beneficial. And that when we talk about e-cigarettes, we're not talking about a single product. If I talk, if you ask me about nicotine patch therapy, although there are a number of different manufacturers, they're all the same. If you talk to me about e-cigarettes, there are about four or five hundred different products on the market, and there are about five to six thousand different nicotine solutions available on the market. Uh, and as you know, the FDA only last year began the regulation of e-cigarettes and e-cigarette. Uh, solutions that go in those e-cigarettes. So it has been up to now the Wild West, and it's not a single product. My impression right now is that if you're committed to a plan to quit smoking, the best approach is to use the things that we know work and that are safe, which are the, the some behavioral intervention, counseling, web-based text messaging, as we've talked about for our study, and the FDA-approved medications. And what's your success rate now? Uh, you know, I know you have several different programs, but overall, people who come to you for help in quitting smoking, how many of them actually end up quitting six months later? So in, in, a, in the Nicotine Dependence Center program for people who we see either in the hospital, uh, while they're hospitalized, or see in the outpatient clinic uh, at six months, about 29 to 30% are not smoking. We have a residential program where at six months our quit rates are about 54%. If somebody tries to quit on their own, the chances of success are really a challenge. Quitting unassisted, you have about a 2 to 3% chance that you'll be abstinent at six months. And isn't it also true that the average smoker tries to quit, what is it, five, six, seven, eight times oh, before I'd they say, actually do? <laughs> pick your number. Uh, it, you, you know, most studies suggest it's at least five or six, and, and many patients tell me it's been dozens and dozens um, that they've tried to try, tried to quit. It's a process, and what it says is that all all addictions, including tobacco dependence, are remitting and relapsing, meaning they, they come and go. People's motivations for staying quit sometimes wanes, and they'll have relapse. But we know that that process is important to get people to that final point where they're permanently abstinent. All right, the lung cancer screening number, once again, 507-538-0340, and you can sneak in the back door to the smoking cessation program, can't you? Yeah, we'd love people to come into the study because we, we would help, like to help them quit smoking. We've been talking about quitting smoking with pulmonologist Dr. David Midtoon and internal medicine expert Dr. J. Taylor Hayes. Thanks so much, both of you, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Tracy McRae joins me as co-host. We will learn about rare and undiagnosed diseases. And later on in the show, the latest on pharmacogenomics from a Mayo Clinic expert. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Watching a loved one's personality change because of Alzheimer's disease is not easy. When people develop Alzheimer's disease, their personality traits sort of become exaggerated. So if they're a genuinely nice person, have been quite uh, affable throughout most of their life, that continues into the disease process. But Dr. Ronald Peterson says sometimes the disease can completely change someone's personality. Occasionally it happens that people do a 180. That is, the nice little old grandmother throughout her whole life develops the disease and then starts uh, uh, talking like a sailor uh, later on in life. The question is, why? Well, it may be related to the part of the brain that's affected. 
if the disease process tends to affect, say, the frontal lobes of the brain, frontal lobes are involved in our behaviors, our personalities, our right and wrong. If that part of the brain becomes effective, then all of those features, all of those behaviors start to change. And in other news, you know fitness is important for your health and well-being. But your days are a blur of work, household chores, errands, and a time with family and friends. Setting aside enough time to sleep, let alone exercise, can be tough. But first things first, just how much exercise do you really need? Well, for adults, the Department of Health and Human Services recommends a minimum amount of 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity along with two strength training sessions weekly. Now, that may sound like a lot, but if you work out at a moderate pace, it's about 30 minutes five times a week. Walking briskly is considered a moderately paced activity. You can also do 75 minutes of vigorous intensity activity to meet your weekly aerobic exercise goal. Jogging, running, and race walking are examples of vigorous activities. So how can you find the time for fitness? The key is to be flexible and make fitness a way of life. Now, to keep exercise a priority, try these things. Put it on the calendar. Become part of a team. Sign up for a softball, soccer, or volleyball team through your local parks and rec department. Join a fitness club and wear a fitness tracker or pedometer. Seeing how far you've come may motivate you to do even more. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dennis Doda. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, when you're suffering with an ailment, we all hope that a trip to the doctor is going to provide some kind of an easy, quick diagnosis and then a treatment plan, but that's just not always the case. Sometimes the diagnosis of a puzzling condition can be elusive, even for years, and it can leave patients and their families really desperate for answers. In 2008, the National Institutes of Health established the Undiagnosed Disease Program, and that program has grown into an international network to collaborate and share data on rare diseases in the hopes of solving more unexplained medical cases. Here to discuss is the Clinical Director of the National Institutes of Health Undiagnosed Diseases Program, Dr. William Gall. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gall. It's a pleasure to meet you. And it's great to be here. Start us off with maybe just the simplest of definitions here. How do you uh, describe what would constitute a rare disease? Well, in 1983, there was the Orphan Drug Act um, offered by Congress, and it was approved. And it defined an orphan disease as one that affects fewer than 200,000 individuals in the United States. There are different definitions in different countries and different continents around the world, but that's the one that we have and we stand by legally. But people can consider some things rare, too. I mean, something like one in a thousand people might consider rare as well. Very good. So those diseases that aren't going to get a lot of attention from, say, a big pharmaceutical company that might profit from finding a solution. Exactly, and that's really an, an issue. Now, many of the large pharmaceutical com- companies have in the past issued the opportunity to pursue rare diseases. But first of all, the large pharmaceutical companies are changing because they realize that some of the rare diseases will reveal pathways and biochemical mechanisms and druggable targets that could be applicable to common diseases. Uh And in addition to that, there are a number of niche 
pharmaceutical companies that have grown up specifically for the purpose of studying rare diseases and treating them with new pharmaceuticals. So there's some hope, and all of this was really engendered by the ability to find these new diseases, their mechanisms, and the genes that cause them. You know, I have heard uh, on occasion different stories about the effect that technology has on this, meaning that social media, some of these patients are finding themselves because they go out and they start Googling their symptoms. And so they set up a support group for somebody who has these types of symptoms undiagnosed. And when researchers can get paired up with that population of people, wonderful things can happen. That's true. Advocacy groups are incredibly helpful for Met, uh, physicians as well as for scientists. And we're thinking of how difficult it is to express yourself or have uh, privacy concerns about your disorder. Patients who have really rare diseases, when they've looked and looked for a cause and haven't found it, are incredibly willing and anxious to tell their stories on television, radio, newspaper, and and they do. They use social media for this. And when they find other individuals, that's enormously helpful for scientists and biomedical researchers to find other cases and to determine what is part of the disease and what's not part of the disease. That really is the purview of experts in rare diseases, and essentially we need more of them. Is there a condition, uh, a disease, where you can think of and give an example that that actually has been the case, that social media has helped? Well, uh, the classic case is um, one that um, Matt might Developed, And you could actually Google Matt mm-hmm. Might. Uh, he, he's actually a consultant to us in the Undiagnosed Diseases Network. And his child has a disease called NGLI-1 deficiency. And that is a problem with sugar uh, handling, but not the classic glucose handling. It's actually mod- uh, the sugars that modify or, or decorate our proteins. Mm-hmm. And there's a problem in that pathway. And his uh, son was the first one to have this disorder. But when he found out that, and he found it out actually by next generation sequencing, you know, that is, you know, gene studies, mm-hmm. um, when he found that out, he put his case on social media. And within months, there were a handful of individuals who uh, were diagnosed with this. And now there are over 50 individuals. So this is now an advocacy group for a very, very rare disease. And it's basically because Matt might used social media to find other cases. Impressive. Tell us uh, more directly about the um, work that's being done at the NIH with the Undiagnosed Diseases Program, if you would. Sure. We started in the year 2008 with very little money. Actually, we started with $280,000 to hire three people, etc. And then it was advertised and it sort of grew and People had to continue it because it had too much popularity. But the two goals of this were to help patients who don't have a diagnosis to reach a diagnosis. And usually those folks had chronic diseases and had been to many, many different places. And also to find out new things about medicine and physiology and cell biology and biochemistry, all those things that will uh, help us to advance uh, our armamentarium for uh, combating diseases. And uh, after a couple of years, we gathered more support from the NIH and saw more patients. And then in the year 2013, the NIH decided to expand this to the country and actually put out a significant amount of money to have six other centers besides the one in Bethesda, Maryland, to 
have clinics for undiagnosed disease patients, along with support. In other words, a sequencing center, two sequencing centers, one for exomes, one for genomes, a metabolomics core, a model organisms core, a coordinating center. And so it is now a national network that just had its second course of funding through the year 2022. Mayo Clinic has one of those undiagnosed programs. How do you interact with Mayo Clinic or with any of the other ones? So there are actually two spheres of interaction. First of all, there's the Undiagnosed Disease Network that the NIH funded, and then there are independent undiagnosed disease programs, and Mayo Clinic is one of those independent uh, organizations. They Basically, they funded themselves, and they were actually doing undiagnosed diseases probably in in a way before we were Mm -hmm. at the NIH. So we share some of the sequencing results, some of the DNA results, to find second cases, because it's always good when you have a unique case to find a second uh, case, and we share best practices. And uh, some of the individuals who work on undiagnosed diseases here at the Mayo Clinic also come to our international meetings. We have an undiagnosed disease network international. And in fact, uh, Eric Klee, for example, here at the Mayo Clinic, Eric is the chair of the membership committee of the undiagnosed disease network international. So, so we have very close ties to Mayo. So you have all of these minds then in a network across the nation and they're funneling the information and the clues and the insights that they get kind of back to you so that you can pick out the commonality and then zero in on the disease. Is that pretty fair? Well, it's not exactly to me. It's to the coordinating center. And the coordinating center has a database that's accessible to all the members of the network so that there's... um, they're funneling information to each other in, in a way. And if you have shared information like that, you can often find commonalities. And those commonalities are not just in diagnosis. They can be in, in treatment or presentations and in, uh, let's say, putting advocacy groups together. What is it that you love about what you do, the work that you do? You, you know, there are <clears throat> there are different things in life. I mean, and for someone who is a scientist and has a physician, there's discovery. But discovery is only one aspect of it. That's an academic or an sort of an intellectual aspect of it. But the human aspect of this is much more important and much more compelling. When we see patients whom we can give a diagnosis to, even if it's a bad diagnosis, they're so relieved to have something to hang on to. And they tell us that, and sometimes they even hug us. Sounds like a pretty good day. It's a good job. We've been talking about rare and undiagnosed diseases with Dr. William Gall. Dr. Gall is the clinical director of the Undiagnosed Disease Program at the National Institutes of Health. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gall. Thank you very much. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, how pharmacogenomics could help improve pain management. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic Radio News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dennis Stoda. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, recently, the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine hosted its annual conference, and one of the hot topics was pharmacogenomics. It's the ability to tailor medications based on genetic makeup to individualized patients. 
Now, when it comes to pain medications, pharmacogenomics testing is also a new frontier aimed at finding the best therapies that relieve pain with, hopefully, fewer side effects. With the current opioid crisis, understanding how a person's genes interact with medication holds promise of identifying which patients would benefit from an appropriate use of opioids and which may be at risk of addiction. Here to discuss are Dr. Timothy Curry and Dr. Helena Gazelka. Dr. Curry is the director of the education program at the Center for Individualized Medicine, and Dr. Gazelka is an assistant professor of anesthesiology and perioperative medicine at Mayo Clinic. Welcome both of you to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Does everyone metabolize pain medication differently? We don't know a lot about it yet. There are certain um, genes that we know are associated with opioid metabolism and certainly affect opioid metabolism. And so sometimes we can select uh, appropriate medications for patients. A lot of times it's actually, that's not very practical, and so it's often trial and error, whether seeing whether a medication works for a patient or not. A simple example is codeine. About 15 to 20% of the population cannot metabolize codeine wow. into morphine, which is required for the medication to become active. So you could have somebody who continues to be in pain, just because, for whatever reason, the drug doesn't get switched on in their body. That's exactly right. Wow. How much is currently known about the role of genetics and its effect on individual patients? Well, we know a lot about the genes that people have that relate to these medications, um, just because of the work that's been done. How they get that gets used, how that information gets used is the, is the challenge. Um, there's been a lot of work going on at Mayo Clinic. We've been talking about it a lot this week at the conference, and that is that how do you take that information, get it in front of the providers who are writing the prescriptions, get it in front of the pharmacists that are then helping guide that medication use, uh, and then making being able to make the decisions on that information. So if you had the information about a specific drug and you knew that it was going, you wanted to find out if it was going to work better or not work at all for a patient, you'd want to have access to that information. You also want to know how to use that information if you could do it, which is what the education program is working on. Now, you're an anesthesiologist, and I know a little bit before the program you mentioned to me that oftentimes a person's first exposure to a pain medication that contains opioids might be in surgery, and, and you feel a sense of responsibility to know more and hope pharmacogenomics can help you do that. Yeah, and that's something I think we're focusing on right now. And Dr. Gazelle can talk a lot about the efforts that are being done right now uh, at Mayo Clinic to make sure that that first exposure is one that doesn't end up causing a problem. Well, that's true. We know that if, when we speak about addiction, which we mentioned at the beginning of the program here, that the first exposure to opioids is often a surgical or an acute event where someone has an injury or they come in and have a surgery, maybe their wisdom teeth removed, maybe an orthopedic procedure. Um, and then they are placed on pain medications for a time afterward. And we know that the length of time that they're on those medications, how much they receive, and um, several other factors weigh into how that patient's risk of becoming addicted afterward. And so it matters what we treat them with for pain afterward. Do you think at some point down the road, knowing our our own set of genes that affect the medications we're giving will become standard testing that will have at least that relevant part of the genome worked up for individuals? I mean, I think so. It's it's part of the barriers were cost, and the costs are really coming down now. The second barrier will be how do you use that information? We've talked about that, both the understanding of how to use the information, but also its use in the actual practice of medicine, because we're going to have to figure out how to get it to a provider at the time they're actually writing the prescription. Um, and that takes the expertise of the electronic health record and using clinical decision support. Uh, and then once 
once all that comes into place, then I think it'll be a, an easier way to choose to use that information in everyone. We were talking before we got going, I think even before you guys got here, about people having a high pain threshold or a low pain threshold. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a different genetics issue. It doesn't have to do with the medication, but how a person even perceives pain to begin with. That's very true, and that is so individual. We really don't know what what all factors weigh into that. It's probably partly environmental. Probably it's genetic in some ways. We we know that there tend to be families that have more pain syndromes in them. Chronic pain tends to uh, be perpetuated in families. But how much of that is environmental and how much of it is genetic, I think we just don't know right now. But we know that there's certainly a genetic component because, for example, there are diseases where people can't feel pain at all. And that's actually Mm -hmm. dangerous because then you put your hand on a hot stove and you don't know to take it off. And that causes problems, too. So there's something there. The challenge now is going to be bringing the right people together, um, both the clinicians that are dealing with the problems as well as the researchers who are trying to figure this out. Now, in your role as a researcher, Dr. Curry, I know you've also looked at ways to avoid the application of opioids at all through other pain management techniques. and I know you had talked about the escalation of pain and, and short-circuiting that before the pain becomes too intense, or even using different kinds of devices in pain management during surgery. Could you just briefly address that? Sure. So in, in my realm in anesthesiology, it's is in the surgical realm, and particularly in orthopedics, which is just a painful type of surgery to have. And by doing things like using non-opioid pain medications, by using nerve blocks where we can try to prevent that pain from really ever escalating to the point, and maybe even bridging them all the way to the point where they won't need opioids at all, um, we think that could be helpful. On the other hand, as an anesthesiologist who's also a specialist in pain medicine, and uh, Dr. Kazelka works on that on the chronic level. Yes, yeah, so we have a number of techniques to use for patients who have chronic pain. And neuromodulation is one of them. That's a broad category that covers things like spinal cord stimulators that can be implanted to help patients with chronic pain manage their pain without taking medications. Logical alternatives is what you're both suggesting here in this case to circumvent the opioid problem for an individual before it ever becomes one, it sounds like. Yes. And it's an individualized approach. It's not always a genomic approach, but it's an individualized approach. And that's really what here at Mayo Clinic we really try to do is, is take an individual approach to each patient as they come through. What do we have to look forward to when it comes to pharmacogenomics? Well, I think that um, there are another a number of ways that th- this may be utilized. When I think about addiction, I think about identifying patients who may be at risk for addiction, identifying patients who may be better served by certain treatments for addiction, including medically assisted therapy, which is often a use of another opioid to treat uh, opioid addiction. And so I think that some of those applications may be very useful in the future. Dr. Curry, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really exciting time, and it's a lot of unknowns at the moment. But as the science really progresses, I think we'll have the opportunity to learn and bring the researchers from all parts, both the addiction, from pain, and from the pharmacology aspect of it together to try to solve the problem. We've been talking about pharmacogenomics and pain medication with the director of the education program at the Center for Individualized Medicine, Dr. Timothy Curry, and assistant professor of anesthesiology and perioptive medicine, Dr. Helena Gazelka. Thanks, both of you, for joining us. Thank you. Our pleasure. Excellent insights. Thank you so much. And that's our program for this week. For more information on topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for listening. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.